0: Let's define natural capital. It's an economic metaphor for the value that nature delivers to the economy. So these values could be in the form of what's known as ecosystem services. There are things like, you know, the, the air cleaning function of trees or the pollination function of bees. These are all services that elements of nature, be it ecosystems or species or genes, deliver to the human world. Frankly, in most cases, they don't charge for these services because When did a bee ever send you an invoice for, you know, annual pollination services from this particular bee colony? When did a tree ever send you an invoice or a forest send you an invoice for cleaning the air? So these are the services, but they need to be valued. And we value them by measuring the impact of these services on society.
1: Today I'm speaking with Pavan Sukdev. Mr. Sukdev is an internationally recognized authority on the integration of sustainability impact and natural human and social capital into accounting and disclosure for the private sector. He was the special advisor and head of UNEP's Green Economy Initiative, a major UN project suite to demonstrate that greening of economies is not a burden on growth, but rather a new engine for growing wealth, increasing decent employment and reducing persistent poverty. Pavan was also the study leader for the TEB, the Economics of Ecosystems and Biodiversity. That study, which was commissioned by the G8 Plus 5 and hosted by the United Nations Environment Program, aimed at sizing the global problem of biodiversity loss and ecosystem degradation in economic and human welfare terms. And it also proposed solutions targeted at policymakers, administrators, businesses, and citizens for integrating what are formerly thought of as externalities into financial and economic systems. Pavan is the founder and CEO of GIST Advisory, which is a specialist consulting firm which helps governments and corporations discover, measure, value, and manage their impacts on natural and human capital. He is the recipient of many awards and recognitions, including in 2020, the Tyler Prize for Environmental Achievement. Thanks for speaking with me, Pavan.
0: Pleasure. Great to be with you guys.
1: Let's start out just by learning a little bit about your work and your sustainability journey. I mean, you've had a fascinating career, you've accomplished so much, and I'm curious to understand how did you come to originally work on the challenge of value-based accounting and sustainability and integrating environmental and social impacts into economics and how we think about corporate value?
0: Yeah, right. Michael, it's been a bit of a journey. So I guess my my entry point to that journey was the economic invisibility of nature, which I realized quite early in my life as someone fond of nature was a problem because it didn't seem to figure in in the thinking of policymakers or in the decisions of business leaders that they used nature because she's valuable, but they lose nature because she's free, uh, because they're constantly considering something that has no price as having no value. And that is actually part of our psychology. we, We belong to a society which is mesmerized by the magic of markets and I could see that being a markets person, right? I was, as a banker, I was basically on the investment banking side and on the trading side and sales and the structuring side. So I was very much involved with markets. And as someone from the inside, I kind of knew the weaknesses as well as the strengths of markets. And I knew that markets are great at equilibrating volumes of demand and supply and setting prices and allocating capital. But I also know that markets are absolutely useless when it comes to solving social problems. That's not what they're built for, right? And I understood that based on my own life experiences, on on my uh, being a new father when I was with my elder daughter, Mahima, who would constantly take me to places around where we lived in Mumbai, which were natural areas where she would enjoy herself. And I would say, wow, this is priceless, This is really valuable, but it has actually no cost and no price. So I understood the difference between price and value. Price is what you pay. Value is what you receive. And when you receive the value from nature, you are basically paying sometimes no price until you lose nature. That was my entry point. And then it led to a project known as Teb, the Economics of Ecosystems and Biodiversity, because I'd done a project in my home country in India uh, on green accounting, essentially adjusting the GDP of, of our states and union territories in, in order to be able to present a, a proper picture to local policymakers. And then I'd gotten involved with the UN and with IUCN and that led to the project TEB, the Economics of Ecosystems and Biodiversity, which then in turn led to a, an assignment at Yale University as their McCluskey Fellow, where I taught TEB and wrote a book called Corporation 2020. I had got a second project at the UN for my pains. You know, as they say, as my father used to tell me, that the reward for good work is more work. So when my boss, Akim Steiner, realized that I was quite a, a willing laborer, he asked me to do a second project. He says, you know, in, in his words, look, I'm sure you're doing used to doing more than one thing at a time. I have this small project at the UN. Why don't you handle that as well? This seems to be connected with yours. It's called Green Economy. I said, what, Green Economy, as in David Pierce and Adil Markandia and and... The Green Economy Report, he says, yeah, yeah, something like that. Yeah, it's just a small project, small project indeed. It turned out to be as big as Teab. Yeah, Teab had sev- several hundred participants and authors. This this had an equal, almost an equal number. So I ran these two projects for a while for the UN and delivered two reports, the Green Economy Report and the Teab Reports. Teab Reports were a suite. So I was kind of imprinted in that. And I still realized that we were missing a key piece of the pie, Two-thirds of the economy is private sector, measured in terms of GDP or jobs or whatever metric you want to use. And two-thirds of the impacts, therefore, on the economy are also private sector. By the way, in the U.S., it's three-fourths. It's 74% of GVA and 75% of jobs. Uh, So I was conscious of the fact that all my work over these years from 2008 onwards uh, to 2012 was missing a key feature, as in what do we need to change at the micro-policy level? What do we need to change in the engine of the economy, the corporation, in order to get the results that we want? And that's what the book that I wrote at Yale University was all about. It was called Corporation 2020, and it was about redesigning the corporation from the outside in and making it respond differently to stimuli and uh, producing the right stimuli in terms of policies, prices, and institutions. So that's where we are today. I run a company which basically works out what's the true impacts of corporations My company is called GIST, stands for Global Initiative for a Sustainable Tomorrow, and it works out your true impacts in economic terms.
1: One of the things that stands out for me about the the Teab report is, is, you know, it was happening in in 2008, and I was curious as to what what was the reception at that time. Nowadays, in the last 24 months particularly, you know, there's a huge focus on climate and biodiversity topics, but at, at that time, I could imagine it was quite a new concept to be integrated with economics and, and finance. How
0: did that go? Yeah, it, it, it was. But you know, we got lucky to an extent, it was serendipity that uh, around that time was a global financial crisis. And every day, you would see screaming headlines about, you know, $2 trillion of central bank money used for bailouts or $2.5 trillion used to stimulate the economy, another $1 trillion from the US, etc, etc, etc. So you'd see all those big trillion dollar headlines. Coincidentally, this little project team that was going along with me and my colleagues had also come out with a scenario analysis which demonstrated that if we valued ecosystem services, the loss of value to society as a result of the destruction of forests and the destruction of wetlands was in fact of the order of two and a half to four trillion dollars every year of natural capital. So I went to the press, basically to the guardian and and to various others and made this point that yes, you are reporting trillion dollar losses of, uh, in, in the global financial crisis. Are you aware that there's been something of the same size happening every year for the last several decades, and will continue to happen every year for the next several decades, unless policymakers and administrators and especially business folks do something about it? Well, they were not aware, and that became a screaming headline. So we got some attention that way. And I think that rang a bell, and then the other thing we did, we got right, was that we picked on a few issues: uh, deforestation and its impacts on the poor. The reality is that nature is the GDP of the poor. If you look at what happens when a forest declines or is destroyed, it's actually the poor farmer's fields that don't receive nutrients and fresh water anymore. It's the poor farmer's wife who has to travel another five kilometers to go collect the fuel wood that she uses to cook and to keep the house warm. So. It's actually the impact of the loss of nature on the poor that is a much more important story. And we call this the GDP of the poor. We said that nature, ecosystem services actually provide direct and indirect benefits to the poor. So you cannot, in fact, have development unless you protect nature, which is providing so much for the very poor, whose lives you're trying to improve. So these messages went out. And I think that got us the attention that the TEB reports deserved. And then the rest, as you know, is is a gradual process of increasing awareness and of late biodiversity loss, thanks to improving awareness and also thanks again to, sadly, the COVID crisis. We have finally understood the real cost of not living in harmony with nature, of not valuing natural systems, of not understanding risks that are posed to humanity as a result of transmission of viruses. The cost of zoonosis or the cost of one business, basically, of consuming wild meat Uh, If you could just work it out, that would be in, you cannot put prices on life, but certainly you can put prices on health costs. And again, we are talking trillions and trillions of dollars. So I think it's a message that needs to be communicated. Uh, It's an idea whose time has come. And I think all of these factors have led to that increasing awareness that you see today. So can you unpack for our audience
1: A bit about the the technical side of your work, um, whether it's from TEB or what you've worked on subsequently, this idea of integrated profit and loss reporting and and integrating natural human and social capital, what used to be thought of as externalities as an internality in terms of how a company measures its own performance and discloses
0: to the market? No, that's a great question. And let me address that point straight on by saying that externalities are essentially third party costs or benefits of doing business as usual, which are not accounted for by the two parties who are doing business. If I'm a car maker, I make cars, I make profit, I'm happy. You buy my car, you drive it, you know, your family and you and your friends are happy. But hey, maybe you know, Maria or or somebody else is not happy because the emissions from my car as a result of your driving have led to her beautiful. Property in Colombia sinking under the waves as a result of climate change. Or maybe somebody else is not happy because the pollution from my car has led to respiratory diseases to somebody else. So these are the third-party costs, and we didn't account for that when I made my car, nor did you when you bought my car and drove it. This is the normal problem of a business world and, an, and a policy world which ignores externalities. What I'm saying to everyone now and what my firm is doing is preparing impact results for companies, the so-called integrated profit and loss, which means not just the performance of the company for its shareholders, which is in financial capital terms, but also the performance of the company for stakeholders like future generations. In other words, natural capital impacts. What about performance for employees? Human capital impacts. What about performance for the society in which you operate, which provides you all of the opportunity that you have, which is social capital impacts? We calculate, we estimate in, in physical terms, in quantitative terms, and we apply models to work out economic values for all of these impacts. So we present the full picture of impacts, and that's called the integrated profit and loss. That's really what we do. And it's a great learning exercise for everyone who's involved in it, especially for the company and for its investors. Because remember, today's externalities are tomorrow's risks and day after tomorrow's losses. If it's an externality today, it can come back and bite you in the butt at some point because some regulator decides to change the law because it doesn't like the fact that there are health costs because of your business model. And then lo and behold, suddenly you've got, for the sake of argument, in the UK, you had uh, sugar levies, sugar taxes based on, on the reaction of the Chancellor of the Exchequer, that the UK National Health Service was facing five and a half billion pounds of losses every year costs every year thanks to having to treat diabetes and obesity. And, and the economy of, of that time was facing another twenty seven billion pounds of costs because of people not being able to work, lost productivity. So suddenly regulation was introduced and that created a cost which meant sugar companies and and, and uh, sugar sweetened beverage manufacturers' share prices dropped through the through the floor. So that's that's internalization by by decree. You can also have internalization by design, which is through the efforts of all of us who are working in this space. You can also have internalization by disaster, which is what happened to BP in the Gulf of Mexico, where basically their market value dropped $70 billion over the month and when they had the Gulf oil spill, and the CEO lost his job, and the company lost its reputation. And they're still suffering some of the costs and penalties from the US uh, government and and, uh, different lawsuits are being settled in the billions of dollars. It's still going on. So externalities do get internalized. The question is when and how and by what route. And then the leading question from there is, well, if you're an investor in one of these companies which has large negative externalities, are you aware of the negative alpha that might hit you in the eighth year of your 10-year run for a private equity portfolio? Would you, love, would you love to see that? I mean, is that what you want? Clearly not, right? So you need to know the externalities upfront. If you're a C-suite executive, be the CEO, or the CFO, or any of the others, You need to know your externalities to be able to prevent that from happening and ending up with being, instead of the darling of of an investor portfolio, ending up being the one outcast that they really want to get rid of. So for all these reasons, it's important to uh, put prices on externalities, to do valuations properly. And that's basically what we do. So that's an interesting anecdote about disasters and how disasters
1: can internalize what might otherwise be considered as an externality is that the case for the shareholder to care about this topic and and want to have more information about these impacts of companies. What is the relationship between the work that you are doing and and shareholder value in the more traditional financial sense?
0: Sure, I mean I, I think the shareholder should care about it because you know as uh, to begin with, of course, it's the stakeholder, the the employee, the person in society, the future, you know, generation unborn person, whoever it is. And so basically, a lot of people should care about the impacts of the corporation, its externalities. But at the end of the day, because these impacts, these externalities can get internalized by, by, as I say, by default, by decree, or by disaster, the three Ds of internalization, the shareholders should definitely care about it. And the asset manager or the private equity fund should definitely care about it, because if they are picking these companies' shares in their portfolio, at some point, today's externalities are going to become tomorrow's risks and day after tomorrow's losses, and their portfolio will not look so nice anymore. So this is definitely something that shareholders need to worry about. So
1: Pavan, if we could just, again, unpack some of these concepts a little bit more, uh, you know, for particularly for sustainability professionals who might want to utilize these techniques, let's start with natural capital. What is natural capital exactly? And how would you measure it and and report on it? I can imagine there's probably some listeners who might be wondering, you know, there seems like to there'd be a lot of uncertainty around that. How do you define the scope of that concept? Right, right. And what would you use to be able to actually integrate it into
0: a reporting framework? Sure thing. Yeah. So I'll, I'll talk to you about natural capital. Well, let's, let's define natural capital. It's an economic metaphor for the value that nature delivers to the economy. So these values could be in the form of what's known as Ecosystem services, and, and in some contexts, they are referred to as nature's contributions to people. There are things like, you know, the, the air cleaning function of trees or the pollination function of bees. These are all services that elements of nature, be it ecosystems or species or genes, deliver to the human world. Frankly, in most cases, they don't charge for these services because when did a bee ever send you an invoice? for, you know, annual pollination services from this particular bee colony. When does a tree ever send you an invoice or a forest send you an invoice for oxygen production or 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 or, you know, cleaning the air or whatever. So, these these are the services, but they need to be valued and we value them by measuring the impact of these services on society. So, if you have bee-based pollination, if you don't have it, there are actual measurements which give you the estimate of Uh, fruit and crop productivity in good bee years versus bad bee years. And that estimate is a variation. It's a difference between crop productivity, which can be given an economic value because you know how much fruit is worth and and crops are worth. And that has been estimated globally as something like 150 billion euros, which is about 200 billion US dollars, which is almost uh, a tenth of the total agricultural output. So that's pretty huge, right? So we're talking about bee-based pollination, bees and other insects, of course. Uh, pollination by insects being worth almost a tenth of the total value of agricultural crops, including fruit. If we want to work out the value of ecosystem services of forests, well, forests capture carbon and and they also generate carbon if they are, they're burnt or they're destroyed. But overall, as a forest is growing, it will capture carbon. We can work that out in terms of carbon sequestration. And we know that that much carbon that is captured by the forest is not being added to the atmosphere So it will result to a reduction in the loss due to climate change. We know from the Stern Review and from the US EPA and other such studies that have been done, we know how much is the estimated economic cost of climate change. And if we also know, based on our estimate of the accretion of carbon by forests, and that's the scientific calculation that is available, how much less carbon pollution will take place and therefore how much less damage would take place as a result of less carbon pollution. So therefore, we know the value that a forest, for instance, delivers to the society in terms of its reduction of impacts, negative impacts of climate change. By the way, what does climate change do? It creates changes in weather patterns. It creates additional storms, cyclones, floods, droughts. All of these have economic costs, as, as you can well imagine. So there, there are estimates, the Stern Review and the US EPA and various other estimates which have been done, which give us these estimates so we can work these things out in economic terms. That's what valuation is all about. Valuation is not about putting a price on nature. There is no such thing as a price on nature, right? The valuation is about measuring and valuing the ecosystem services of different aspects of nature, whether it's a forest or whether it's a a collection of pollinators or whether it's just, you know what, it could be just nature in a park. You walk into a park, which is typically free. You sit there, you enjoy life. If you were asked whether you enjoy it, you'll say yes. If you were asked, would you pay for it? You'd probably be willing to pay two euros or, or a couple of dollars for entry into that park. Well, that's the value that you have, through willingness to pay, exhibited for observing the butterflies and and the flowers and the trees and absorbing the beautiful, lush greenery of the park. You're willing to pay that. So that's another way of estimating the value. That's basically called contingent valuation. Other ways of estimating value, well, is based on... on uh, observing price, asset prices, which are close to nature. If you are, for the sake of argument, at a high flat, which has a nice view of uh, Central Park in New York, which is on 56th Street, uh, maybe that flat, that flat, if it's, let's say, 1,000 square feet, may be worth $2 million. But if you happen to have an identical flat, just in 58th Street, literally two streets away, where you don't have a view of Central Park, well, that flat may be worth $1 million. And that is an example of the market demonstrating that there is a difference in value simply because a certain asset has been priced differently because of the view of Central Park, and so on and so on. There are many different ways of estimating economic values of nature's services, and I've given you four examples. Uh, and there's a whole library of these, and, and uh, there's a whole approach which has been summarized by the TEB project, the Economics of Ecosystems and Biodiversity, which I was privileged to leave and lead in uh, 2008 to 2010. And of course, there's more recent work that's been done, such as by Professor Partha Das and his team. They've just come out with a study. Oh, sorry, they will soon be coming out with a study which is being launched in a couple of days from now, uh, which is a biodiversity report. And they, of course, uh, have, have updated a lot of the work that was done by TEAM and have provided fresh insights as well. So this is good stuff. It's all going on. It's, it's now time for policymakers and businesses to use these natural capital impacts. And certainly we, that is just my company, definitely are going to do that. And we're going to use all of this information as we already do and provide it in the form of impact valuations to companies and investors who are interested in these things.
1: And what about human and social capital? I believe this is something that in your work, you're also thinking about how it can be integrated. How do you define those and how do you measure and, and propose that they be integrated for reporting purposes?
0: Sure. So just like natural capital is an economic metaphor for the value that nature delivers into the economy, and a lot of it is free, so also human capital is an economic metaphor for the present value of future incomes that are generated as a result of uh, good training and good human resource development, and uh, also good health and safety policies carried out by companies, enabling employees to learn, to train, to improve their earning power and therefore to be more valuable employees and therefore earn more for being more valuable employees in the future. We can calculate that. We can calculate the change in an employee's expected income at the time she joins the company versus her expected income at the time that she leaves the company, perhaps five years later because her partner moved or because she got a better offer in somewhere else or whatever whatever it happens. Uh, So the estimates of value of the employee can be worked out in terms of present values of future incomes, and they change over time, thanks to her own credibility and qualities, but also thanks to the training and development and opportunity provided by her current employer. So these are contributions to human capital. And social capital is essentially all of the relationships, an economic metaphor for all of the relationships in society, be they formal institutions like law and order and the constitution of the country and taxation systems and so on or whether they are informal institutions like trust and respect and communal harmony. So there are formal and informal institutions which comprise a lot of the bedrock of society and that the economic value of those institutions is essentially social capital. And that's more difficult to estimate because unlike human capital, which generates incomes, salaries and and bonuses, and natural capital which generates incomes in the form of crop productivity or value of property and so on, and physical capital, which produces incomes in the form of profits uh, for the company. Social capital doesn't automatically generate incomes, but you can bet your bottom dollar that in the absence of social capital, none of the other three capitals is as effective in generating incomes. And that you can calculate. You can calculate how much will be lost to natural capital, to human capital, and, and to produce and produce capital, companies' profits, in other words, as a result of loss of. Social capital, and that's basically how we model social capital. We use different models uh, in different contexts. You know, CSR programs can be estimated based on the additional health value that they create, or the additional educational value that they create. And you can say that, well, a company, if it spent X on creating health and social value for the people in its community, w- would be doing so because the the, spe- the expenditure that it has undertaken at least as much as the value that it's creating. So there are different ways of doing it. But uh, we can estimate these, and there are lots of models that we use to estimate such values of social capital. There's been increasing government
1: and policy focus on this topic, but not a lot of clear direction. Christine Lagarde recently mentioned that she sees in the near term that there will likely be more policy progress on the three I's, as she called it. One was inclusion of social and environmental costs in the economy. Um, That could be through things like carbon tax regimes, for example. The the second eye is information through individual company disclosure, which is obviously key to what what you're focused on. And then the third would be innovation in in green investment, and particularly through equity investment and and asset management. What would you say to policymakers based on the work that you've done for over 10 years on this should be their focus in thinking about
0: regulatory approaches to, to these issues? I'd, I'd say the policymakers should really make an appeal to an independent institution, which is the accountancy bodies, right? The the global body in terms of the the IASB, the International Accounting Standards Board, and they should appeal to their individual as national policymakers. They should they should sit down their their national accountancy bodies. In in the, in the UK, it would be the ICAEW, the Institute of Chartered Accountants of England and Wales, and in the US it would be the FASB, the Financial Accounting Standards Board, and say to them that, look, you are doing a great job so far in terms of bringing to the investor and to the public at large the impacts of the company on shareholders. But what are you doing in terms of impacts on stakeholders? Surely that's also important because today the corporation that you are tasked with with managing the, the uh, disclosure for is the single largest institution of our time. Collectively, the corporate world is two-thirds of the economy and jobs, and therefore two-thirds of the impacts on the environment and so on. So you need to improve your capture of data and create standards and accounting standards which publicize the value creation or the value loss that has been caused by the company on human capital, natural capital, and social capital. You need to be even more comprehensive in your in your. A duty of creating information for the operations of the company and therefore hold them accountable to more than just their financial uh, stakeholder, which is the shareholder. Having said that, for the, the accountancy to, regulators to not ask for impacts on natural, social, and human capital also illustrates a degree of short-sightedness because, honestly, those impacts do come back to the bottom line in some form at some point, whether it's by design, by decree, or by disaster. as I I mentioned earlier. So it is also in the interest of the shareholder to be aware of these impacts and not make them appear as surprises in the 11th hour of an important exercise or in the eighth year of a 10-year holding period for private equity fund or whatever. So I think this is what policymakers should be doing, engaging actively their respective accountancy bodies to expand the brief of these accountancy bodies into reporting not just financial capital impacts, but also human, social, and natural capital impacts.
1: There has actually been a lot of momentum towards thinking about sustainability disclosure in the context of accounting standards with, uh, of course, the IFRS, International Financial Reporting Standards Body, looking at establishing a sustainable standards board that would bring together various types of voluntary disclosure from GRI, CDP, SASB, IIRC, and then develop kind of a common approach, and this emerged from work that the World Economic Forum did in in twenty twenty, driving towards common approaches for this kind of disclosure. Do you think that type of work holds promise to achieving the goals you think it should from from this from the work that you've done, or or is it going in a in a direction that is different from what you're envisioning?
0: I think it's all broadly pulling in the same direction, which is towards a greater. Uh, transparency and, therefore, greater accountability of corporations uh, towards stakeholders. I think the the um, impetus that was given to this in two thousand and nineteen, September or October, by the the U.S. group, the le- corporate leaders who came together and and declared that you know the purpose of the corporation matters; it's not just about profits and shareholders. The I business think the round, fact the business the BRT, as it's known as, yeah, the business roundtable in the U.S. And I think the World Economic Forum meeting in. Uh, and was it January 2020, which actually center-staged this issue of corporate purpose and accountability. I think these are all very good steps in, in the same direction. What I fear is that there shouldn't be too many... Uh, there is a tendency for the corporate world to be quite egotistical and to think that they are the fountain of all knowledge and that they've created something new. They haven't, to be honest. There's a whole bevy of economists who've been saying this, and I'm, I'm talking about serious economists like Nobel Prize winners like Theodore Schultz and Kenneth Harrow, and, and I hope future Nobel Prize winners like Partha Das Gupta, who've been talking about this for decades on end, right? So I'm quite humble about this. I'm, all I'm doing is implementing the work of my gurus, basically, these leading economists. And I think the business world and the people who are in it should recognize that there's a lot of history here that they need to bring to the table. And they would be doing themselves and everyone a service if they collaborated and created one set of standards. Uh, for how do we measure again? I mean, can you imagine if we didn't have the IFRS for uh, multinational corporations, what a mess it would be, right? What if there were 25 different initiatives trying to figure out how to report uh, financial performance for a multinational corporation? It'd be a total chaos. And that's what we are unfortunately going to head towards if we don't get just sort of pause for breath and say, okay, let's sit everyone together and come to one standard for how do we expand The world of financial reporting into the world of impact reporting. And then you should be hearing the voices of people like Professor George Serafim from Harvard University. he He teaches at the Harvard Business School. He's been saying this as well. I've been saying this from a practitioner's point of view. The idea that, you know, we should have one set of standards to work out impacts in the four capitals, the four major capitals. And by the way, when I say four capitals, again, this is not my invention. These are the same four capitals that have been used and talked about by Professors and and Nobel Prize winners like Theodore Schultz, Kenneth Arrow, Karl Mailer uh, is is not a Nobel Prize winner passed away recently, but he and Professor Aswatha and Arrow have written extensively on this topic of measuring all dimensions of capital and not just financial capital. Uh, so I think there's a lot of there's a lot of history here which needs to be pulled together, and I think the business world would be well advised to sort of reflect that history and derive their, their new standards and their new approach based on all of this research that is already available, thanks to the work of outstanding economists and, and analysts of the kind that I've mentioned.
1: Do you believe, Pavan, that there will one day be a unified framework of that sort for value-based accounting? And, and if so, like what kind of time horizon do you see before people get there?
0: I'm definitely a believer in this. So I I think the work that's being done, for instance, by the Value Balancing Alliance, by the the Capitals Coalition, by the Impact Management Project, by the IMP, as it's called, and by uh, existing initiatives from earlier on, such as the IIRC, the International Integrated Reporting Initiative, and um, the building of the lovely foundations that have been laid by the Global Reporting Initiative of Alan White and and, uh, Marjorie Kelly and others, so there's a lot here which is historically available to us. I think we should just now collectively concentrate on pulling it together, right? This is not about making reputations or, you know, establishing prominence or preeminence or whatever. This is not about ego, right? This is about the exact opposite of ego. This is about recognizing that all of us in the interest of humanity and in the interest of society need to collaborate with urgency and bring out one set of standards. And collaboration has much greater value, including economic value in this context, than competition. There's no point in people competing. There's, I mean, my own firm and my own philosophy is collaborate aggressively as much as you can. And whenever we find someone on the same wavelength as we are and trying to, you know, create something, we say, can we help you? What can we do together, right? Can we write a paper together? Can we help you implement a platform? Because we already have one, which is called Impact360X
1: yeah can you tell us a little bit more about impact three sixty x? so what what exactly is the
0: platform and and how does it work? yeah it's it's basically a software as a service. So and as you know, my firm's been in this space for the last decade uh, almost and since two thousand and and eleven, two thousand and twelve, we've been working with companies doing this. What we decided a couple of years back is that, look, we need to scale because just the the time that we are in, I mean, look at climate breakdown, look at COVID-19, look at all of these things that are happening around us. It's ridiculous for us to be moving at the pace, at the slow pace that we are. The only way that we are going to achieve our mission to make sustainability accessible to all is to actually get all of the knowledge that we have onto one platform and then let companies and eventually investors as well access that platform. And that's what it is. Right now, it's a corporate platform which enables any company in any one of the the sort of traditional sectors of the economy, and we've mapped more or less 50 plus 52 sectors as of now. Uh, So literally, I mean, any company that's in in the MSCI developed market index, and very soon any company that is listed in the uh, MSCI ACQUI index should be able to come to our platform and be able to work out its impacts. Not only that, but to be able to compare them with others in its sector. So it will know whether it's top quartile, second quartile, or third quartile, or whatever. On climate change impacts per million dollars of revenue or water usage per million dollars of revenue or you know air pollution per million dollars of revenue or whatever it, it needs to look at. Or for that matter, human capital created per million dollars of revenue. It can work these things out. And um, that's the power of the platform. So it's basically pulling together more than 60% years of research and development of you know algorithm writing, of data gathering, data cleansing, of writing code as well of late to make everything available on one platform. And our use of technology is extreme. I mean, to calculate air pollution impacts, we basically logged into the NASA database for wind speeds and wind directions. So the NCAR database essentially uh, provides us the wind speeds and wind directions, which enables us to do the modeling of where the pollutants land, whether they are particles like PM2.5 or 10 or molecules like SOX and NOX, where they land, what are the impacts of that on human health, as a result of increased ambient intensity we use the who database for health correlation basically the pollutants intensities correlations with disease likelihoods that is from the who and we use national databases for health costs all of this is now available online so basically at the press of a button you can get these answers
1: that's fascinating now just going back to the the path towards a, a an overarching standardized approach the task force on climate related financial disclosure was a real catalyzing framework that has advanced the the discussion in in, in terms of climate change and there's a perhaps lesser known framework called the task force on nature related financial disclosure yes
0: tnft that's right
1: how does how does that framework uh, in your view relate to this this overarching goal for having a standardized value-based accounting approach is and, and and how does it relate to the work you're doing
0: I think one will lead to the other. So, as 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 you're aware, that the TCFD talks in terms of carbon quantities, right? CO two equivalents. The Task Force for Nature Related Financial Disclosures will have to come out with uh, different proxies for nature because you know nature isn't easily translated into one entity. I mean, biodiversity. And ecosystems, essentially the living fabric of this planet. It's not a gas. So you can't convert it into CO2e or something like that, but you can express it in different ways. And our own preference is to express it in terms of the economic value of ecosystem services, because that's a numeraire that people understand, policymakers understand, and, you know, C-suite executives understand. So we go with that in the absence of anything better, but let's see what, what the TNFD decides to do. But I'm hoping that they take the, uh, the available, like I said, you know, it behoves us not to try and reinvent the wheel, not because it's a good or a bad idea, but because there's no time. We need to use everything that's available. And right now, what's available is the great work done recently by the, the uh, Pathadas Gupta group on, on biodiversity, the earlier great work done by my colleagues of the team report. All that is available stuff, right? It's, it's in the public domain. There's no charge for it. So let's use it. Let's make use of all of this good stuff that's sitting out there waiting for people to use it. And do you have any final thoughts, Pavan,
1: for corporate leaders and about how they should be thinking about this topic?
0: Yeah, I have a thought and a plea. You know, competition is great. I'm from markets as well. I've spent 26 years of my life trading, structuring, originating, selling, (laughs) all kinds of market instruments in my life. And I understand markets and I understand competition. But what I have learned through these years is that collaboration is also a great force time has come for us to make use of and leverage collaboration and create more economic value than we could have done by competing against each other. So let's get this into our thinking of the corporate leaders of today. Let's collaborate aggressively and fearlessly, right? And I think we will end up with an economy and a society which is far better and far safer than the one that we have today. Very good. Thank you so much for your time. Thank you. My pleasure.
1: Thanks for listening to Sustainability Leaders. This podcast is presented by BMO Financial Group. To access all the resources we discussed in today's episode and to see our other podcasts, visit us at bmo.com forward slash sustainability leaders. You can listen and subscribe free to our show on Apple Podcasts or your favorite podcast provider and we'll greatly appreciate a rating and review and any feedback that you might have. Our show and resources are produced with support from BMO's marketing team and Puddle Creative. Until next time, I'm Michael Torrance. Have a great week.